Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Wow, let's, let's pray. <laughs> Father, this is an intimidating psalm. It is one that causes us to tremble and causes us to fear that 
um, while we can relate to a portion of it, it's, it's a challenge for us in our, in our uh, flesh, in our natural self to understand um, how we can be a people who can have hope in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our afflictions, in the midst of our difficulties. Um, and so, Father, your ways are not our ways, and so I think this is what makes it so uh, fearful and trembling for us, uh, because it just, your truth doesn't come to us naturally. It, it requires a, a work of your Spirit within our hearts and lives. And so while we know this psalm is one which ha- is, is very uh, profound, um, we are people who cannot understand, understand it apart from you. And so, God, we'd ask that you would work um, through your Holy Spirit into our lives as we come to your word, that as we, as, as we hear it and as we think about it, that your spirit would be then attaching it to our minds and our hearts that we might understand what good truth you have for us in the midst of it and how it might work itself out into our very uh, hearts and lives uh, of everybody here today. Um, so we give this time over to you and, and look forward to what you'll be doing. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Rob Spikestra. I'm the pastor of Discipleship, and we are in a series uh, called Summer in the Psalms. Um, Psalms are a special book in that they are the inspired songbook for the church. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and hearts and intentions of the hearts. And that is certainly true of the Psalms, to not only get at our head, so what we ought to think about who God is and how He acts, and not only to get at our hands, not only to show us what we ought to do um, by the basis of who God is and how He works, but also our hearts, what we love, that we love God for who He is and how He works. So the Psalms are unique in that they get at our hearts through through poetry. But not only are the words of the Psalms inspired, but their order. That the Psalms, as a five-book set, has a story to tell from Psalm 1 all the way to Psalm 150. Psalms 1 and 2 are the introduction to that overall story, an introduction that goes deeper than, uh, or the themes go deeper in from those themes that are introduced in Psalms 1 and 2. So God gave us the Psalms that we might be people who are blessed. The first stanza of the Psalms, blessed is the man or woman. Written word of God is crucial to our happiness according to Psalm 1. And so last, last week we looked at Psalm 19 and we discovered that there, The written Word of God is more than sufficient not only to shape our heads and minds and our our hands and what we do, but it also is sufficient to shape our hearts. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the hearts. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The written 
Word of God is crucial for our happiness. But the second half of the introduction, Psalm 2, uh, revealed that crucial to our happiness is also the living Word of God, the Lord's anointed. That God did a surprising thing in the face of our rebellion. He declared that He had set His King on Zion, His holy hill, not to condemn the world, but rather to be a refuge for the rebellion, refuge for those who are rebellious. And thus the introduction ends how it began. Blessed are all who will take refuge in Him. So not surprising that God has, met, has much to say about His King in whom He set on Zion, His holy hill, Psalm 22. Psalm 22 uh, is in the middle of some psalms. They're called their five kingship psalms, psalm, beginning with Psalm 20 through Psalm 24. And so that Psalms 20 and 21 are focused on David's earthly reign along with the promised reign of a Messiah. Psalm 23 and 24 move away from the earthly reign of the Lord, of the Messiah, to a, a more of a heavenly reign, that there is a shepherd king who is greater than David, whose reign is more than just an earthly reign, uh, it is a heavenly reign, so that at the end of Psalm 21, it is asking the question, who is this king of glory? And the answer is, Yahweh of hosts, he is the king of glory. So the question is, is how is the promise of, to David that God would raise up for him an offspring from his body whose kingdom would be established for, forever, how is this promise going to merge, this earthly promise, how is this going to merge with his heavenly promise, his heavenly reign? How is the Messiah's earthly rule, Psalms 20 and 21, Yahweh's heavenly rule, Psalms 23 and 24, how are they going to merge? Well, right in the middle is this transitional Psalm 22, which provides the answer. Somehow what is happening in Psalm 22 is bridging the chasm of the earthly throne with the heavenly throne. Now, it's not too difficult to see how this psalm is prophetic in nature to our Lord and Savior's suffering on the cross. I would argue that the Lord was so steeped in the psalms that in his most deepest, darkest hour, Psalm 22 was his help. That just as the word of God is crucial to our blessedness and our joy through whatever we are going through, so it was true of the Son of Man. Crucial to his blessedness, his joy was also the written word of God. And this is most clearly seen in the first words of Psalm 22, which are his first words on the cross, according to the gospel writers, and that the last word of Jesus on the cross is taken from the last stanza of Psalm 22. 
But we need to remember, before getting there, going there, that this psalm was written over a thousand years before Jesus lived on earth. It is a psalm of David, and that the original context was David as the sufferer, and that what he learned in that suffering was profound, and then informed Jesus in life and in death. So we need to start with David and then work towards the promised Messiah, Jesus, and then but then from there we can see what God wants to do in and through our own suffering. For we are called to carry our cross daily. So here's the question I want to get at that this psalm answers. How do we abide in our suffering when God is seemingly absent and delaying the answer of relief to our prayers? How do we abide in this? How do we abide in our suffering when it seems that God is seemingly absent and he's not answering our prayers for relief? He's delaying. So let's look first at David, the suffering servant. See, look at how that theme, uh, God's absence and delay, is introduced in verse 1. See, the opening words of the psalm raises raises an unanswered question as David, the first within a line of messianic kings, cries in puzzled agony. He cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And there's really three questions here expressing the deep despair that, God, uh, that David is experiencing. The first question is, why have you forsaken me? Second question is expressing surprise that God hasn't made an attempt to save him. Why are you so far from saving me? And then the third question is asking about God's failure to even listen. Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? So that God's absence becomes unbearable. See, he feels forsaken by his God. Look there, it says there, what is he? My God. See, the individual within the covenantal community did not have to be just content with the covenant, God's commitment, commitment to his people as a whole. His promises were not only national, but they were personal. With that, it is an equivalent, when we see here these words, my God, it's an equivalent to my father, a child casting him or herself upon the father. See, abandonment is that experience of suffering when one's hope for deliverance is out there, but none comes. Precisely because the psalmist was a child of the covenant, he had a great expectation that his covenantal God, who had promised to hear and to deliver, would come to his aid. But he doesn't. He feels abandoned. I think what is instructive in David's response to his experience of abandonment is that he persists in prayer. Verse 2, he says, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Day and night, David is not silent, but God is. You do not answer, he writes. And the suffering is relentless. There, There is, he writes, no rest. 
We all have or will or are or will experience what David is experiencing here. We've, we've prayed, right? You, you've prayed. We, we've prayed for rescue. You've prayed for it. Only to receive silence. You've prayed for years with seemingly no response. You find no rest. Verse 3 introduces the now a poetical structural division through verse 21 that is marked by a back and forth tension from God to David and his experience. The interaction is only heightens the intention. This is, this is the way he's trying to heighten for us to understand what, he is, what he's going through. And it's divided by these phrases of, yet you, but I. You can see that in verse 3, down to verse 6, down to verse 9, down to verse 14, a little bit of variation there, verse 19. So what about God in our suffering? Well, first, David recognizes that he is holy. The contrast between who David is and who God is is infinite. So he writes, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Now, it's tempting uh, to shape God into our experience of God, or to shape God into our experience of God. And, and so David isn't doing that. David, God's revelation of himself trumps our experience of him or how we feel about him. So David says, you are holy. That is, you're not like us. You're other than. You're infinite. You're infinite in all your character, your, your, your characteristics. No limits to your wisdom, your goodness, your truth, and on and on we could go. Thus, he is enthroned on the praises of Israel. That, that is, he rules, and what God's people say about him is the proper expression of his rule. So the problem with our suffering is not that God doesn't rule. And the problem with suffering is not that he is limited or that his arm, his arm only reaches so far in its goodness or power or wisdom. God's self-revelation trumps our experience of him. And God's perfect story supersedes our own broken story, and so we must define who he is and how he acts according to his own story. So look at verse 4. That's what David does. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. This is God's story. And the key with our interfacing, our story with God's story is faith. And so what did he say? They trusted, and when that happened, you delivered them. That trust then was expressed through prayer. Verse 5, to you they cried and were rescued. But at this point, that's not really very comforting <laughs> for David. David trusts in God and thus he cries by day and by night. But David's act of faith in God isn't accomplishing the rescue. He looks at God's story when Israel cried, God rescued, and he received their praise. So that look at verse 5, at the end of verse 5, it says, In you they trusted and were not put to shame. On the contrary, that seems to be all that David is experiencing. Shame. Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock and they make mouths at me and they wag their heads saying, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him for he delights in him. 
but I am a worm. When it seems that God has abandoned us and put people turn their back on us, we begin to lose our sense of dignity. We begin to question everything we thought we were. Everywhere where we placed our identity, I thought I was a good leader. I, I thought I was a good father. I, I thought I was a good coworker. Begin to put in your own identities in there. David is experiencing a rejection like never before. Whatever he is going through, people are questioning his integrity. They are questioning his skill. So he writes, I am scorned. I am scorned by man, mankind and despised by the people. See, there, there's a real temptation for us when we see someone else going through unexplainable difficulty. That is, there is no one-to-one -one correspondence. You know, you sinned, and as a result of sin, there's a consequence of pain or suffering. Uh, when, when, when we see people who, who are in this kind of this place where there's unexplainable, when God's people go through this unexplainable difficulty, and there's a temptation by us who are kind of looking into their pain and misery that we want to find some explanation. We fear suffering that doesn't have an obvious cause. First pastor that I pastored under um, when I was in ministry, my first ministry was, he was saved in the military in the 1960s, and God called his, him and his wife to a ministry through Cadence International. Cadence International, what they do is they provide what they call hospitality houses, houses right outside, outside the bases, military bases around the world. And so God had called them to Vietnam uh, in the 60s, late 60s. You know your history, right? Vietnam. And so they would, what they do in these hospitality houses, six days out of seven days, they simply provide meals, and then they provide just a place for men or women to come off base to, to a place where they can get a home-cooked meal, a, a place where there's friends that they can meet, not the temptations that could be out there off-side base, a, a place where they can hear the Word of God, a place where they can play games, they can talk, they can even stay overnight if they need to. And so they did this for three years in Vietnam until the Viet Cong chased them out. Two children, they faithfully parented these two children. They left Vietnam, um, yeah, Vietnam, and they, they, he began to teach in a Bible college, and from there he became a pastor. That's when I came into, into his ministry. Uh, this was a faithful man who had lots of fruit, lots of men and women coming to faith in Jesus Christ, uh, lots of fruit within his life. Yet unexplainably, their son rejected Christ and went off the spiritual and thus moral tracks, never to repent, and died. Oh man, we, we needed an explanation. We were tempted to know what caused this. And people wanted to dig. And some even separated from them because, ugh, don't want to be part of that. Job's friends were like this. They peered into all of his loss, the loss of possessions, the loss of life, the loss of health, and they desperately searched for and dug into Job's story to find sin. And perhaps their digging was initially for Job's sake, for him to confess his sin and repent. But when he insisted on his relative innocence, they replied, well, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not justice dwell in our tents. 
See, they feared that somehow they would be infected by some unconfessed sin, or perhaps worse, they wouldn't be able to explain away the injustice. Yeah, it frightened them. When Job insists that all of his loss is simply at the feet of God's unsearchable will, his friends say, Aha, we got you now. <laughs> Pointing to God. They, write, they say, you are doing away with the fear of God. Your iniquity teaches your mouth. Your own mouth condemns you. Oh, they were so wrong. Job's friends needed some reason for his pain and suffering. They needed a reason because they needed to believe they could control their own pain and suffering. Unexplainable suffering frightens us. We, we despise it because we don't want it to be true of our own life. We think we can control suffering and pain. We despise it, and thus we're tempted to despise those who have it. So what we feel, we speak. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And then they, what they do is they hijack our own words, and we, they use them against us. David's enemies took David's words. Verse 8, he trusted the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he, capital H, delights in him. See, David's better past as he expressed that he did trust in his covenant God and that God in his covenant faithfulness would deliver him because God did delight in him. God delights in all those who are in covenant with him. So this is an accurate expression of a theological truth. And so they turn it on David and beat him down with a logical conclusion. God obviously doesn't delight in him. He's got pain. He's got suffering. Seemingly abandoned by God. Really abandoned, abandoned by those around him. Yet you, verse 9, yet you, verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You, you made me trust you at my mother's breast. David pictures God as present and watching over his birth. God sustained his life through his mother's care. The reality that his very existence reveals God has a purpose for him, but even more significant, a covenantal purpose. Verse 10, on you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. See, there was never a time with David that David did not know Yahweh was his God. Jesse, David's father, had him circumcised at eight days, and so he entered into a covenantal relationship with God. Uh, so he was covenantly related to God who promised to be his help in trouble. So he prays, verse 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. So he goes into some details. Outward landscape of trouble and then inward landscape. See, we, we get here to verse 12 and Scripture regularly employs this imagery, this imagery of powerful uh, bulls and lions and the horns of oxen to indicate international powers and so there are powerful forces who have come together against God's people, and so not surprising when we find in Psalm 2 that nations are in rebellion. So we read, Psalm 2, the nations of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And David is his anointed. He is it. He's the leader to whom everybody is looking to lead them. 
Verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan, when they were proverbial for their size, have surrounded me. And they're strong and they have deadly intent. Verse 13, they open their wide, their wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Ravening means to be extremely hungry, looking for prey. David's enemies are on the hunt, looking, for, looking to satisfy their hunger for his downfall. Well, that's David's outward circumstance. What's he feel like inside? Verse 14. I'm poured out like water. Spiritually and emotionally thin. All my bones are out of joints. Physically affected, literally weak need. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Loss of courage, loss of resilience, loss of ability to cope with the trauma of life. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like the potsherd. The potsherd is a broken piece of ceramic that is so small it was symbolically used in the Bible as being useless. So our pain and our suffering causes us to be useless. It says, my tongue sticks to my jaws. Cotton mouth. <laughs> it is as if the tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth. David writes later in Psalm 69, 3, he says, I am weary with crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with awaiting for my God. He's so weakened by the hatred and alienation, by the feeling of being forsaken by God and man that his bones, heart, strength, and tongue are all failing him. He can go no further. He's in a state of shock. You lay me in the dust of death. From dust to dust, you've come to dust to dust, you will return. I just want to die. And did you notice to whom he holds responsible? You lay me in the dust. God. God is responsible. When we wind our theological tape all the way back to the ultimate source, we find God's sovereignty. But David's not done. God is responsible for the dogs, the evildoers. Like the bulls which encircled him, they are encircling dogs. Look, it goes on. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. So, you know, in the ancient Near East, uh, dogs were not man's best friend. They were scavengers wandering about looking for the unguarded to viciously attack and get their fill. They have pierced my hands and feet. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. The awful reality is that his enemies are entranced and are entertained by his suffering. On the verge of death, like vultures eager to gain from his death, verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Verse 19, but you, Lord... He shifts his focus off the external, internal landscape of his difficulties back onto Yahweh, the God of his covenant, and this is his only 
hope. See, the covenant name invokes the memory of God's promises to be near, to support his people, and to protect them from their adversaries. God has committed himself to these covenantal responsibilities, and it is these he turns his attention and prays, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid, he prays. David is desperate, verse 20, deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life. His soul is at stake. He is nothing but skin and bones. His inner life is filled with anxiety. His enemies are ready to pounce on whatever gain they can get from his loss. He lies in the dust of death. Deliver my soul from the power of the dogs. Verse 21, save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. There has been a rescue. Oh, please rescue me again. So, not surprising that Jesus, the suffering servant, found Psalm 22 relatable and his help in his deepest, darkest hour. Matthew, Matthew 27. Matthew in his gospel, he records his last hours like this. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, a primitive form of pain relief in anticipation of nails going to be being pierced through wrists and ankles. It's going to be the only mercy he's going to get right here. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Now, can you imagine being stripped naked in front of people who the majority were there for the spectacle? And to be looking down and finding men indifferent to your shame, indifferent to your suffering, who are at least trying to figure out how can we gain from your slow death. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, mockingly, this is Jesus the king of the Jews. Then two robbers who were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourselves. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross, using his own words to mock him, to ridicule him. So also the chief priests, when the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice in Aramaic saying, Eli, Eli, lama batsakvaktani, that is, 
Yeah. Psalm 22, verse 1. His first recorded words on the cross. He knows, he knows what it's like to be abandoned by someone whom he had an intimate relationship with. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like for you to be abandoned. And he knows what it's like to pray and there be a delay. He knows. So how was Psalm 22 a help to David that it became Jesus' source of joy on the cross? And thus it can be a help to you, the church, the suffering servant. Or going back to my original question, how do we abide in our suffering when God is seemingly absent and delaying the answer of relief to our prayers? Well, it's found in verses 22 through 31. Verse 22 makes a major shift in tone and topic. If the first 21 verses express a sense of God's abandonment and delay, verses 22 and 31 is an expression of his presence and rule. And what is remarkable about this shift is that nothing has changed in David's external landscape, but everything has changed in his internal landscape. See, when we think about suffering, we, what is it? why is it that we suffer? We suffer because the very things that we thought were going to satisfy and fulfill us within this world, we come to the end and realize they won't. People won't. We suffer at the hands of people. We expect something from them, and they don't give it. We expect something of ourselves, and we don't give it. They fell, we fell. The things that we thought would be satisfying, the things that we thought would be truly, deeply going to be satisfying to our souls, ultimately suffering, can, we, can, we can trace all the way back, suffering comes as a result of those things failing in some way. So how do we have joy in a world that has failed with failing and as a result suffering? Well, we need to find someone who won't fail us. And that's what David discovered and Jesus applied at the cross. 22 through 24. I will tell you of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. See, in our suffering, in our waiting, we, whose presence, we get to sit with our covenant-making Father. Or maybe I should put it this way, with our covenant-making God. God is present. God, the covenant-making God is present. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is present in our suffering. See, in Job's suffering, his friends sat with him, and that's exactly what God does with you. 
in our suffering, in our waiting, an infinitely greater one is sitting with us, our covenant-making Father. See, did you notice the repeated references to God's family in verses 22 and 23? My brothers, verse 22, offspring of Jacob, offspring of Israel, verse 23, and then the covenant name, Yahweh, verse 22. We are more to him than distant citizens of his kingdom. We are his children and thus his brothers and sisters. So note how David identifies this reality in verse 23. You who fear the Lord, you who fear Yahweh, praise him. Those who fear the Lord are those who are in covenantal relationship with him. C.S. Lewis, he, you know, he wrote uh, the Narnia series, and he has Asland. And Asland, of course, is this roaring lion who's terrifyingly satisfying and comforting. That's Jesus. It's interesting that when, when C.S. Lewis, when he first wrote uh, th- those stories, children re- actually wrote back to him and said, I love your stories. I'm feeling really guilty because I, love, I think I love Aslan more than I love Jesus Christ. <laughs> to which he would write back and say, it's okay, Aslan is Jesus Christ terrifying and yet comforting. And so when he says, you who fear the Lord, those are the ones who are in covenantal relationship who recognize that although they ought to be the ones who should receive God's wrath because they are in rebellion, God calls them to himself and says, I will be your refuge. And so they fear the Lord and they praise him. Those who fear him are his offspring. All you offspring of Jacob glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. He has not despised, abhorred David's afflictions like the people around him. He has not hidden his face from David. He has not. He has heard when David cried to him. Why is that? Because this covenant of grace that all of David's forefathers enjoyed and that he enjoyed and all his offspring enjoyed was looking to the day when the father would hear the son's prayer. Hebrews 5.7, we read this. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who would save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. So what does the Hebrew writer mean he was heard when we know that rather than being saved off the cross, he remained on the cross? See, what was certainly on the mind of the Hebrew writer was that at the moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's those hours, hours away from the cross, Jesus is praying. And he is in such emotional agony at this moment that he is sweating uh, great drops of blood. His heart was broken at the prospect of bearing sin. He felt the weight to be carried. And he felt the temptation to find his own escape from the pain. And he cried. And he shed tears, and he hurt, he grieved. So when Jesus prayed to the Father who could save him from his death, Jesus wasn't ultimately praying to escape the cross. And we know this because one week earlier, Jesus said, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. See, Jesus knew that the cross was the purpose for why he came. Jesus was praying for not escape from the cross. Jesus was praying for, praying for the resurrection. Jesus was praying that his death would not be in vain, but rather that it would be sufficient 
to satisfy God's wrath against our sins. See, the resurrection was the public proclamation that what he accomplished on the cross truly satisfied the Father and addressed our greatest need, salvation from sin and thus restoration of our relationship with the Father. And so the Father answered the Son's prayer. That God would be satisfied with his suffering and death on the cross. The Father answered his prayer and hid his face from his Son. And despised him for our sins that he might be our Father. So as you suffer and wait for God's answer to your prayers, know this. The covenantal God sits with you in that. The Father who planned it, the Son who prayed for it and applied it and, and, and worked it out, and the Holy Spirit who has applied it to your life if you are in covenant relationship with Him, they're all sitting with you. They're sitting with you today in your suffering. Number two, in our suffering, in our waiting, we sit with the one who is sovereign. We sit with the one who is sovereign. See, look at verse 25. David writes, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. See, the very praise that David says he will give, he knows where it comes from. David was not able to praise God apart from God chasing after him, apart from God seeking him out, from, apart from God doing a sovereign work in David's life so that that covenantal relationship we had resulted in praise, even a praise that comes in the times of difficulty and suffering. So David knows David knows who is sitting with him. And in his sovereignty, God has ordained the church to be the conduit of what we need in our suffering. See, so where does David praise? David praises God where? In the great congregation. Or earlier in verse 22, with my brothers in the midst of the congregation. David understands how crucial the gathering of God's people is to his own soul and to their souls. So he is committed to gathering and worshiping whether or not he feels like it. See, the temptation in our times when God seemingly is absent or where God is, is, is not, uh, is not uh, really responding to our prayers, to our good godly prayers, the temptation is to draw away from God's people. The temptation is to run away. The answer to feeling alone in our pain is not to run from the presence of others, but to be in community with others to be worshiping with him and listening to and participating in the worship of God. See, the Hebrew writer writes this now, Hebrews 10, verses 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Well, how do we do that in the bad times? For he who has promised is faithful. But how can we believe that when it seems he is unfaithful to his promises? The answer let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good words, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So when I don't feel like worshiping, I worship with God's people and see what I don't feel. And when I feel abandoned, I worship with God's people, a reminder that God is as near as that person next to me, the body of Christ. 
Thus, David promises to fulfill his vows. He writes, my vows I will perform for, before those who fear him. And the vow that David is referring to is the free will offering, which you see in verse 26, provided resources for those who were afflicted. In other words, David's obedience has trickled down implications of meeting the physical needs of others and ultimately their spiritual needs, which is, by the way, foreshadowing Psalm 23, where the shepherd king sets a table for his people before their enemies, and he does it through one another. In our suffering the Sovereign One is present in and through His people. Number three, in our suffering, in our waiting, we sit with the King. 27, 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and return to the Lord. All the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to Yahweh, and he rules over the nations. See, what David is doing now is he's turning his attention away. God has taken his attention away from his own situation and recognizing God is still the one who is the king. And there is a greater story that is going on here, and that story is one has a great end. All the failures that I've had in this past life, in my life, everything I can look back last week or last month or last year or in my life, all those failures, that is a result of people who are boasting but can't live up to their boast. But God is the one who says, I am the king. I am the king, king, the Lord of lords. I will fulfill this. He will never fail in his boasts. So it's anticipating Psalm 24. To God belongs rule over the earth. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. He is a covenant-making God, Yahweh, who wants all the ends of the earth to turn to him, to enter into a covenant with him. He rules over all of our suffering for kingdom purposes. Number four, finally, in our suffering, in our waiting, we sit with the Redeemer. We sit with the Redeemer. See, Hebrews 12, 1 says that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He joyfully, he joyfully suffered. So this goes back to the fact that when we talk about blessedness or happiness, that's when we recognize that we don't define it just simply by, oh, yeah, I'm happy because my circumstance is happy. No, God promises that we can be people who are blessed, who are happy in the midst of the most difficult circumstances. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Verses 29 through 30, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship, and before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. See, look what they proclaim there again. Verse 31, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. See, this is what Paul was leading up to when we were in the book of Romans for that first chapter. It continued on. He wanted, what he was doing is he was showing that the reckless and the respectable and the religious 
are all alike. They're all sinners. And so the question he was asking is, well, how is God going to redeem these sinners? How is God going to bring uh, righteousness to them? And so this is the end that he comes to in that, at least the beginning of the end that he comes to in Romans 3. So Romans 3, 21 verse 26 says this, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The, re, the reckless, the respectable, the religious, all have sinned and fall short of the glory, glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus so that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the proclamation is, look there at the end of verse 31, that He has done it. He has made sinners righteous. Or as Jesus so eloquently stated it on the cross, the last words, it is finished. He finished the work. God called him to. And at that moment, Jesus truly has done it. He's done it. And so the Redeemer sits with you. He knows what it's truly like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like to have to wait. And he sits with you. Nothing has changed for David Nothing's changing for you on the outside. But what does change is who is present there. Christ is the answer for the dissatisfaction of your soul. He satisfied the Father so the Father would be your satisfaction. Trust in Him today. Rest in Him today. Father, I pray, we pray that you would apply your word to our lives and all the situations that are here today. How, I am so th how we are so thankful, Father, that as we pray together, we are praying that your Holy Spirit would bring down your good truth into hearts and souls so that we would not only love your, your written word, but Father, today we would grow in our love of your living word. So do it. Do what none of us can do, but what you can do. Be present, Father, in our suffering. Help us to experience that, to understand that, to grow in that, to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. We pray. We ask these things in Christ's name.